I see the future that's within our grasp. From the Political Science Department at UW-Madison. Democracy is not a prophecy, it's self-actuating. I'm Claire Salmi. I'm Cole Wozniak. And I'm Fiona Hatch. This is more work than in my previous life. I thought it would be easier. This is 1050 Bascom. On this episode of 1050 Bascom, we're honored to welcome Sam Cornell to the podcast. Sam is a Madison native and graduate of La Follette High and UW-Madison, with a degree in political science. He now works in D.C., but continues to give back to his Badger roots by teaching a class for UW-Madison's Wisconsin and Washington program. A veteran of the Obama campaign and administration, Sam has been the executive director of the Democratic National Committee and has been at the DNC since 2017, under former chair and Obama Labor Secretary Tom Perez and current chair Jamie Harrison. Today, we will talk to Sam about his work on the campaign trail and what that entails, before asking him about his own predictions and opinions of Biden's re-election campaign, who will lead the Republican Party, and what we should look out for as we head into the 2024 election cycle. We learned so much from Sam, and we hope you will too. Okay, so Sam, thanks for coming on the podcast. Why don't we start off with you telling us a bit about your time at UW and your pathway into professional politics? Where did you get your start and how did you get to where you are now? Absolutely. Well, first, thank you, Cole, so much for having me on. This is a, a privilege to be able to chat uh, with uh, students who are in my the shoes I was in uh, some just 15 years ago. Um, so I, I was born and raised in Madison, which is sort of the, the origin story of how I ended up at Wisconsin. Um, you know, my, my mom was a school teacher, um, and I'll get to that in a second. Um, but needless to say, you know, I, I couldn't afford to go somewhere, you know, far away and, and pay out of state tuition, but also you had an incredible uh, institution at the University of Wisconsin that uh, sort of checked all the boxes. I was really looking for something that gave me some international perspective, you know, wanted to meet people that weren't uh, entirely yeah, uh, you know, from Wisconsin, um, I was interested in in various things at the time. I thought I was going to go into medicine. Uh, so obviously, there's a phenomenal uh, science and and uh, med school in at Madison, um, and politics had always been something that was was I was interested in, um, but not as a as a professional pursuit, so to speak. So. When I was a, a boy, I'm one of three uh, brothers, my mom would insist on sit-down meals at the dinner table. And that was despite all the sports and music lessons and all the things we had going on. And, you know, she'd always ask us about our days, our highs and our lows. Uh, but every now and again, we'd turn the question back on her. And it was the stories that I heard around that kitchen table that really animated my interest in politics that ultimately became the pursuit of it professionally. You know, I still remember a lot of the kids' names. Casey Rowan was a seventh grader who was shot and killed by a classmate. Uh, my mom was a guidance counselor at the school at the time. She got the call we were sitting at the dinner table, and I'll never forget that experience. Obviously, we have very lax gun laws in Wisconsin, and uh, Democrats, at least, have been trying to do something about it for some time. Um, but that just didn't seem right to me. Uh, there was a young woman that my mom mentored who would show up really early on Mondays, and this saga played out for about six months of the school year. Um, you know, did she show up early today? You know, 
what's going on? And and finally, we figured out through my mom that it was because it was the first hot meal she was going to have, you know, in three days since Friday's lunch. And so, you know, those those stories day in, day out, night in, night out, week in, week out, you know, they just uh, they were little little seeds that started to germinate when I got to Wisconsin. And when I got there, it uh, took about three weeks of, uh, I don't even know if it was organic chemistry. I think I took AP chemistry. So I think it was the one that comes after that. But I just remember spending a few weeks in that class and thinking, this is not what I want to do for the next seven years if I'm going to go to med school. And that's when I uh, decided to uh, take a political science class, David Cannon's Poli Sci 104. um, And that changed the course of my life. And uh, I went and got an internship working for a state senator in the Capitol and, um, you know, put my head down and, and did a lot of work. And that led to subsequent opportunities that I'm sure we'll talk about. That's a really inspiring story to hear, especially as the host who doesn't know you very well. So thank you for sharing that. We're kind of also wondering, what does your job look like now? And what does your regular workday kind of entail? Yeah, thank you, Fiona. It's great to meet you. Um you know, every day is different. Uh, and, that, and that's one of the things I like about it. Um, you know, you can have the best laid plans, but at some point, you know, uh, another candidate might say something, you know, we might have a fire to put out, there might be an issue with our staff, or with, you know, an elected official somewhere in the country, and we have to sort of spring into action. Um, but but generally, uh, there's a cadence to each day and each week. And uh, a lot of what I do, a ton of fundraising and managing the cash flow of the organization, we have 300 staff uh, at the DNC mothership alone, let alone all the staff we fund uh, around the country. Uh, so there's a ton of HR work, our uh, staff proudly is unionized. So there's a lot of work in just managing the relationship between the bargaining unit in our team, a lot of, you know, strategic decisions to make, you know, at any given point, we have a finite uh, amount of resources, money to invest in, in races or political power building really is, is what our focus is. Uh, and so every, every, you know, investment decision you make means there's a winner and a whole bunch of losers. So we put a lot of thought and analytics into how we're determining which races we're going in to help and when and in what capacity. Um, there's a lot of polling and, and opinion research. Um, we do a lot of paid advertising, and I include in that like relationships with paid influencers. So we built a network of influencers to try to communicate outside the bubble, so to speak, uh, to younger voters and to tell the story, not just you know through you know a democratic TV ad or something like that, or even through a candidate, but through trusted messengers who aren't overtly political but care about the issues that Democrats, uh, the president, the vice president are fighting for. Um, so it runs the gamut. Uh, every day starts out with a series of senior staff meetings, though everything from you know communications to our budget and finances and operations. Uh, there's a lot of check-ins with our team. We have a, a pretty big team, 300 folks, senior staff of about 20, um, all of whom I meet with one-on-one uh, at least once every couple of weeks. Um, there's a lot of external briefings. You know, we obviously just rolled out a presidential campaign, and so there's a lot of work now to engage uh, stakeholders, as we call them, uh, coalitions, you know, national groups, statewide groups that are uh, working on behalf of uh, either similar, same uh, values and issues, or with groups that we ultimately are working with two uh, groups of voters to to ultimately turn out next November. So uh, it, it's really diverse, and it it's uh, something I enjoy about it. And, you know, it's definitely not for everyone, but um, that's what in no small measure makes it fun. So you worked at the DNC during the 2018 midterms, 2020 presidential and 2022 midterm elections, all of which were viewed as successful for Democratic candidates nationwide. 
Uh, during that time, Wisconsin was one of the premier battleground states in the nation with its 10 electoral college votes, along with high-profile Senate and gubernatorial races. What's it like to be working in these high-profile positions in your party while your home state receives so much national political attention? Uh, well, especially over the last six years, you know, we've had a, a, a fair amount of success in Wisconsin. So the the first thing that came to mind is just pride, the pride I feel and how much work we've put in at the national level, how much work folks like Ben Wickler, the state party chair and his team have put in, you know, at the state and local level. And that effort isn't just ultimately about winning elections. It's about building political power. And Wisconsin, to me, is a bellwether for the country. We just had a, a really impressive 11-point win in the state Supreme Court race. We were heavily invested. Uh, obviously, the Wisconsin Democratic Party and outside partners did a ton of incredible work and were heavily invested in that race. That portends really well for uh, not just uh, future elections this year in other states, but also the, the presidential next year. But we can't rest on our laurels. Uh, so that more than anything has been, you know, my experience from my vantage point, not just being from Wisconsin, but now leading the national political apparatus is just this notion that you can't rest on your laurels. You have to be pushing every single day, you know, building relationships, maintaining relationships with voters, engaging different stakeholder groups who are necessary, but, but not necessarily sufficient for electoral victory. And, you know, Wisconsin has been uh, a national bellwether for, you know, two decades. Four of the last five presidential elections have been decided by uh, around a point or less. And so uh, to see the success, not just electorally that we've had, but in, in building that political power where we're competitive year in and year out, you know, precedent be damned about what the polls say or what historical uh, trends have been. That to me is the lesson that we've uh, invested in in Wisconsin, but also taken away and are now uh, duplicating in other states. And it's why, you know, down in Georgia or Pennsylvania, Michigan, Arizona, you're seeing real you know, cycle in, cycle out political power from Democrats that we haven't seen in a while. And that might not be mean we win every election or every one we're going after, but it does mean that we start the day after the election in a stronger position than we went into that election. So you kind of touched on this in this answer as well, but we were also kind of wondering what, how has this been meaningful for you, this work that you've done um, in these uh, high profile positions? Yeah, that's it's that's a fantastic question. I mean, I think um, you know, it's it's a privilege to wake up every day and think about how you are going to make people's lives better. And that might sound a little woo-woo and a little too altruistic. Um, but ultimately this isn't just about winning elections. Like, sure, that's fun. It's a measure of success in the in the near term or short term. But ultimately, I work in politics because I want to make a difference in the lives of people like those who's stories I heard around the kitchen table when I was a kid. I mean, that's why that's why we're here and doing this. Um, and so, you know, over the I've been at the DNC for a little more than six years now, which is a really long time in uh, national politics. Um, but it's in part the reason I've stayed and, and why I'm still animated by the work is because there's still more work to do, right? We've made a ton of progress as a country. Some of the states that we've talked about have made progresses in their own right. But ultimately, there's a lot of people who still need our help. For me, that's uh, my role in helping them is about electing more people who see them, the looked over, the left behind, the uh, left out. Uh, those are the folks that we're fighting for, and that's what makes it particularly meaningful. So last Tuesday, President Biden announced that he would be running for re-election as a non-neutral observer. Can you frame the race for us and what you believe will be the biggest dynamics and how you expect it to play out? Yeah, so... 
you know, the president announced his reelection campaign four years to the day from when he announced uh, his first campaign in Philadelphia in 2019. And that was no coincidence, um, you know, and, and so I would actually point people back to his speech that day in Philadelphia in uh, April 25th of 2019, uh, really phenomenal speech really framed how he viewed the, the, the contest, uh, not just for the Democratic primary nomination, but ultimately the general election against uh, then President Trump. And that's very much still the way we are framing this. And the president fo focused on sort of three uh, three three objectives. The first was to restore the soul of the nation, um, to bring honor and dignity to the office, uh, to bring trust uh, and honesty back into uh, national leadership, you know, to try to heal wounds that had been uh, sowed not just by President Trump, uh, but by his supporters, uh, by, uh, you know, those on the far right who seek to divide us. Um, so that was first objective, and that that's not done. We still have work to do. The second was to fortify the backbone of the country, the middle class. Um, the president talks a lot about, you know, uh, building growth from the bottom up and the middle out, not from the top down. Um, and we've made a lot of progress there, too. Twelve million jobs created since the president took office. Historically low unemployment. Uh, wages are starting to rise for the first time in a generation in a meaningful way. Um, but we also know that there's work to do on that front. Healthcare costs are still way too high. We, you know, have effectively passed a $35 insulin cap started with Medicare, but others, uh, pharmaceutical companies have adopted that $35 cap, but that's just one important drug. And there's a whole lot of others out there that people are spending, you know, way too much of their disposable income to the extent they have it, um, you know, trying to acquire, uh, healthcare costs are still too high. You know, women's reproductive rights are not only at stake, they've, you know, suffered some pretty uh, egregious defeats over the last year. And we need to you know, protect women's access to abortion and people's access to abortion. Um, so, you know, on on that uh, second pillar of, of fortifying the backbone of the country, the economy and healthcare and everything associated with it, we still have work to do. And the third thing he talked about was unifying the country. And, you know, we, we've made some progress. The president himself has played a leading role in passing more, you know, bipartisan, major bipartisan legislation than um, probably in the last 20 years. Um, but there's still a lot that uh, ails the country. And we now have a divided Congress. And uh, I think that that's an opportunity for the president uh, to play to his strengths, which is working uh, not just uh, with Democrats in the broad Democratic coalition, but with Republicans to try to address some of the challenges that everyday Americans are facing. So, um, you know, his his sort of hashtag for the launch in this early phase of the campaign is finish the job because uh, we've made a lot of progress. It was a historic two years in terms of productivity, major legislation, more federal judges, more diverse women on the federal bench than ever uh, before. You know, the largest investment in climate uh, legislation, real money, hundreds of billions of dollars behind it for the first time ever. It's the largest in the world. Um, you know, bipartisan infrastructure uh, bill, which is putting hundreds of billions of dollars uh, and uh, affiliated jobs uh, into communities to repair bridges and roads. Uh, you know, rural broadband passed the first meaningful gun violence prevention legislation in almost 30 years. You know, we passed the CHIPS Act, which <laughs> incentivizes business to bring high skill manufacturing back to the United States. So we're not sending our money to and jobs to China uh, and putting our national security at risk. So, you know, there's just a ton of unfinished work, a lot of it um, that that is squarely within the president's uh, skill set when it comes to working across the aisle, but also maintaining this big, broad, powerful political coalition that's making a difference in people's lives. Yeah. So what do you think that 
Biden will have to do, what kind of hurdles do you think that he might face during this election cycle? And do you think that there are any particular strategies that um, the administration might have to play into um, as we are about to enter this presidential cycle? It's a great question, Fiona. Um, so first, in no particular order, the first thing that comes to mind is, you know, traditionally when you're running a campaign, you sort of get to take a step back from your official duties. So if you're a senator running for re-election, you kind of decamp to your home state for the last six months of the campaign. And sure, you may have to make some trips to Washington for votes and things, but by and large, you can focus, uh, you know, almost entirely on being a candidate. When you're a non-incumbent, when you're a challenger, obviously it's even easier. That's all you're doing all day, every day. Um, it's just different when you're the leader of the free world and he's the president of the United States first and foremost. And so we'll have to build a pretty massive, historically large uh, political operation, uh, campaign operation, both the DNC and the Biden for president campaign together, working as one team uh, in order to you know, start recruiting volunteers and raising the money to speak to as many voters as possible, as close to year round between now and next November as possible, all while the candidate himself and the vice president uh, in her official role, uh, are are doing their day jobs. Uh, that's a uniquely difficult uh, organization to build. That's first. The second is a, is a communications opportunity, not even challenge. It's an opportunity, which is that you know I, I gave you a non-exhaustive list of some really incredibly meaningful and important legislation that we've pushed through. Um, but you know, not not nearly as many Americans are like you and I and reading the daily news every single day and staying up to speed on, you know, what's happening in Congress or what's, uh, you know, been signed by the president. Um, they're living their lives. And so over the next 12 months, we have a really important opportunity to take advantage of, which is to, you know, continue going into communities and talking to people with authentic messengers, meeting them where they are. Uh, that includes, but is not limited to young people like both of you, uh, and talking about how those accomplishments have directly impacted their lives. Talking to you know working people about what the infrastructure law is going to mean for their job prospects. Talking about some of the investments in education we've made. Um, talking to women and people who are seeking abortion uh, about how Republicans are not only stripping away their freedoms, um, but trying to you know, further erode what few remain in some of the states. Um, so it's not just about communicating the accomplishments, it's about communicating what we believe in and how that's going to directly impact uh, those people. And then third, third thing that comes to mind is, is just money. I mean, none of us on my side of the aisle are fans of, you know, money in politics, but it is a fact of the political environment that we are in. And until we get some more uh, liberal judges on the U.S. Supreme Court, you know, Citizens United is uh, the prevailing campaign finance regime. And that means that we have to raise a lot of money in order to communicate that message and hire the talented, diverse young people that we're going to need to help us for to build and fortify the Biden-Harris coalition. Um, and fourth, you know, is our voters. Uh, we There are just far more Democratic-leaning voters. And I don't say Democrats intentionally. I intentionally do not say Democrats. Um, because a lot of young people like yourselves are 70, 80, 90 percent aligned with where the you know overall majority of the Democratic Party are, but they don't call themselves Democrats. And that's OK. It's OK to not be connected to institutions so long as we as the Democratic Party have the ability uh, and, and take advantage of the opportunity to communicate to those voters uh, why their interests are aligned uh, with our beliefs. Uh, and that takes time. Our coalition, that Biden-Harris coalition, 81 million voters in 2020, it was the largest uh, political coalition ever assembled uh, in American politics, the most diverse ever assembled in American politics. But 
our voters are also a little harder to find, you know, disproportionately young people, communities of color, people that are working two or three jobs. So it just takes more work and more time and more resources to go out and talk directly to them about the stakes, what we've accomplished and how both will impact their daily lives. Yeah, as um, I mean, maybe I'm biased because I am a political science student, but I feel like those are some great points and like really interesting to think about as we're coming into this election cycle. Kind of going off of that, looking at the other side of the aisle, who do you personally expect to emerge um, from the other side um, in the GOP primary? Do you have any predictions? You're Feel free to say no if you don't. <laughs> well, I think... Where I'd start is that I'm not quite sure it matters because you can't really tell a difference between any of them. I mean, Donald Trump, the mega Republican extreme fringe, it now controls every lever of power in the Republican Party. Um, Speaker McCarthy, as we all saw, 15 rounds of voting, who was driving the opposition and ultimately extracting just egregious concessions from Speaker McCarthy. It was the Trump wing of the party. Uh, you look at their candidates that they put up last cycle. Part of the reason we had a lot of success was because we had really good candidates and a good operation that could buck the historic uh, headwinds that we were uh, encountering in a midterm cycle. And they had really terrible candidates who are on the extreme right, who are supporting you know, abortion bans with no exceptions for rape or incest, huge tax cuts for the wealthy, refusing to address gun violence. Um, you know, a whole bunch of the Republican caucus in Congress wears uh, AR-15 pins on their lapels, as if that's some sign of their commitment to uh, to freedom. Well, you know, we think that freedom is being able to, uh, you know, go to school and come home at the end of the day if you're an eight or nine year old kid. Um, so, you know, I'm not exactly sure it matters who we're up against, is my point, because ultimately what we're talking about and how we're framing this uh, this choice uh, is agnostic, given the lack of diversity on, on their side from an ideological standpoint. Um, it appears to me that Donald Trump is far and away the strongest candidate. And, you know, again, he is uh, he wholly owns a good portion of the Republican Party. So. You know, we're seeing Donald Trump in some of these public polls at 50, 55 percent. Uh, and Ron DeSantis so far has proven himself to have a glass jaw and not be ready for prime time. You know, he's passing, you know, just egregious, disgusting legislation, you know, concealed carry, uh, six week abortion ban, both of which he signed in the dark of night, literally like 11 o'clock at night. So even he recognizes that um, what he is doing to placate the far right extreme of his party, which, again, is really the, the governing center of his party, uh, is ultimately not advantageous for him should he make it to a general election. Otherwise, why would you sign those bills in the dark of night? Um, but until Donald Trump starts to see real atrophy or, or Ron DeSantis gets in the race and starts to eat into his lead, I think uh, for now it looks like Donald Trump is running the strongest in their in their race. I think that we do want to um, shift a little bit to asking about a class that you teach. But before we wrap up real fast on this uh, conversation, I did want to ask, do you have any like quick fire um, things to know for voters who are going into this cycle or any like last words that you would want to give to potential future voters, um, especially student voters um, as we're coming into this? Yeah, I mean, there, there's a lot I want to say, but uh, we probably don't have enough time. So I'll just say this. I mean, I look, I, I pour over data, both before and after elections as part of my job. Um, and there is there is no generation, no cohort of voters that 
over the last three or four years have wielded more political power, in my view, than young people. Um, and so, you know, I know that it is easy to become cynical about politics, about the political process, and it is wholly imperfect. Don't get me wrong. I'm frustrated a lot in this job. Um, but I also see what a difference young voters in particular are making at the local level, at the state level and nationally. Um, that is real. It matters. Um, people are trying to take away your right to vote. They're trying to not just make it harder. Uh, you know, Trump and the MAGA Republicans are literally trying to cancel your votes after the 2020 election. Um, you know, Carrie Lake, a gubernatorial candidate in Arizona, still hasn't conceded her defeat uh, and is, you know, continues to throw everything she can at the wall to try to make those votes not not count. So uh, what I would say more than anything is, you know, you have agency, profound agency. And it's not only your vote, uh, but that is probably top of the list in how you can chart a new path for uh, not just our party or, or or candidates running for public office, but for the country um, and take advantage of that, wield it. Um, it's really, really important. Um, and then the second thing I would say is, you know, find a cause, find a passion that you that you believe in. I know we're going to talk about the class in a minute here, but, you know, one of the reasons I uh, I decided to teach was because I saw the conversation happening in the 2016 campaign around the swamp in D.C. And don't get me wrong, there's a lot of ridiculous things that happen in this town, but by and large on both sides of both sides of the aisle. The people doing this work are smart, sharp, empathetic public servants who really care about the future of the country. They're not, you know, slimy, you know, operatives who are just trying to make a buck. They're in it for, for by and large, the right reasons. And I think that's especially true uh, on my side of the aisle. So if you feel a calling, uh, it doesn't have to be for party politics or, or partisan gain. It could be that you care about climate or voting rights or abortion access or uh, maternal and infant health care, whatever it might be. Uh, um, as I tell my team, find your fight, find your fight and uh, lean in because you know, there's no sort of secret organization or group of people or legislature. There, there's no there's no thing out there that's going to save us. Um, it's ultimately all of us. It's voters. It's the people. And you know, putting aside partisanship, the numbers are on our side. Those who believe in the extreme and unrelenting, you know, nature of climate change and its impact on, on our communities and the planet. Uh, people who believe in access to safe abortion care, who believe in the right to not go broke because you got sick, who think that being, you know, middle class in this country should still mean something. You should be able to provide a roof over your head and a mortgage that won't go underwater education and job training for you and your and your children, uh, healthcare again, that won't make you go broke, a dignified retirement. Um, you know, so all those things matter and they're on the table and it's up to all of you to sort of harness that agency that you have starting with, but not limited to voting. That's really empowering advice. Thank you for that. Um, we wanted to also shift gears a little bit, as you said, to talk about that class that you teach for the Wisconsin and Washington program for any UW students listening to this. Um, that class is called Presidential Campaigns and Governance for anyone listening. Uh, but what do you think students can get out of that course and the program as a whole? 
Well, with all due respect to all of your political science professors, and many of them are mine as well, and they're all amazing, lovely people. Um, it took me about three days working on my first campaign to realize that, you know, everything I just studied was important and mattered, but it also didn't really give me the tools to understand how things really worked. And I don't just mean, you know, like smoke filled room, how it really worked. I mean, like the nuts and bolts of campaigns uh, down to, you know, like explaining to me the different teams that make up a, a big presidential campaign. Um, and so, you know, I, I felt like it was missing and that it could be a really nice compliment to the students who've self-selected into spending, you know, a semester not abroad in Barcelona partying or in Rio de Janeiro on the beach or wherever it might be, but, you know, students who actively sought out, you know, a Washington, D.C. experience. Uh, so the, the class is, is premised on the following notion, which is that their media landscape has evolved dramatically over the last century, especially over the last 30 years. Uh, if you think about the rise of network uh, TV, so it started with just radio and print, then you introduce network TV into rise of cable news and 24-hour news uh, cycles to rise of the internet and blogging and and lowering the barrier to journalism, but also really stressing local news and local journalism to rise of social misinformation, etc. So we we track that evolution of media land, landscape and ultimately how it's impacted the the way presidential campaigns are run and how presidents govern. Um, so you know ultimately the goal of any candidate but especially of a president is to speak to the widest swath of americans you can uh, but ultimately that becomes uh, in some ways easier and in some ways much harder uh, given the current media landscape and how it's changed over the years so every week we have a guest almost every week we have a guest that are a mix of republican top republican operatives top democratic operatives and and top journalists uh, who come in and talk to us about who they are and how they got to where they are, and then answer questions from the students. Um, and then we read a, a couple works about two of the, um, I think, presidential campaigns that have really uh, come to define each modern political party. So we read David Pluff's book about the first Obama campaign in 2008 called Audacity to Win. Um, and then we read a book by Craig Shirley about the 1976 Reagan primary campaign, which uh, is really, I argue, what has come to define uh, the modern uh, Republican Party. So um, it's it's a mix. Uh, students range the you know run the gamut on the ideological spectrum. Um, we have a spirited, substantive, and respectful uh, conversations about uh, politics and news, and and really try to unpack what's happening behind the scenes. And, um, you know, it's it's been a, a joy and a privilege to get to know students like yourselves. And um, more than anything, it's a three hour respite every week from the craziness of my day to day work. So this is the last week of classes for UW students. And next week will be finals week. And a fourth of all UW political science students will be graduating in the next two weeks, including both of the hosts. What advice would you give to Wisconsin students looking to begin their careers in professional politics or public service that you wish early 20s Sam Cornell would have had, which is usually how you end your classes when you have your guests with that question. So thought it would be time. Yeah, exactly. Well, Cole is a is an alum of the Wisconsin and Washington program and is one of the sharpest that's come through. Uh, and it was a real uh, honor to get to know him. 
Um, so he knows that we we end every uh, class, every guest. The last question that we ask each guest is the same, which is what would you give 21-year-old, uh, insert name, uh, what piece of advice would you give yourself, 21-year-old you know, self uh, on navigating DC, your politics or journalism or life, um, just based on your experience? Um, and I think Cole can correct me if I'm wrong, but it, it, some common themes emerge. So I'll start with the common theme that emerges the most, which is uh, don't be an asshole. The, the political world, both within Wisconsin and nationally, is incredibly small. And I have found that um, more often than not, you can move up by treating people poorly, but it almost always comes back to bite you and prevents you from further growth. And the reality is you just never know, you know, what uh, intern you, you know, empowered and gave some really meaningful projects to who in 10 years is going to be running a campaign that you want to be a consultant on. Uh, you just never know what, uh, you know, random lawyer you're uh, across the table in a negotiation from who is ultimately going to be, you know, on the Supreme Court. Um, you know, that, that those experiences, uh, you know, they are true beyond politics, but they're especially true in politics. So that's my first piece of advice is just treat people well. Um, the second is, you know, spend your 20s in particular chasing inspiration and your values. Um, what I mean by that is uh, don't think about some linear path or where you want to be in 20 years. You'll have that in the back of your head of course, but, you know, find a campaign, find a candidate, find a cause that inspires you. Um, I had a boss uh, years ago who used to say, he whose job is his hobby is the happiest because they never have to work a day in their life. And I think that's particularly true for anyone who is considering working in politics or public service. Um, you know, ultimately, if you get up every morning fired up about what you get to go do that day, it is very easy to throw yourself into it and to really see meaningful success and that success begets more. Um, so find your fight. Third thing I would say is worry about the work, don't worry about the money, especially in your 20s. You know, and I've experienced it myself, but the, the worst thing is to chase more money and abdicate your values or your inspiration too soon in life. Um, there's always time to go make money. But it is very hard, I have found and seen, for people to uh, kind of unwind the decision to chase that instead of what really motivates you. So, you know, it, it might sound a little crazy, but finding a group house because you aren't making a ton of money, but that frees you up to say yes to some really interesting opportunities that might not make the kind of money you need to have a one-bedroom apartment in a you know, big urban center. Um, that's important because ultimately, once you get that, once your quality of life changes, once you you know are having a family and have a home, it's really hard to go pick up and work for a candidate across the country who speaks to you, who you want to go fight for. Um, so uh, chase the work, don't worry about the money. Um, and then fourth, you know, there's a, there there will be especially those of you who end up in Washington D.C., uh, but really anywhere you're doing this work, there is a a belief, I think a false belief that you have to network in order to be successful. And the entire notion of networking, this very transactional business cards and, you know, and, and almost a facetious short-term relationship, transactional short-term relationship. Um, that's not how I would look at it. Um, I think young people in particular should intentionally seek out and cultivate and then maintain meaningful relationships. And those two things are very different. Networking, swapping business cards. Hey, let's grab coffee with no follow-up, right? That, that's, 
that's ultimately not uh, organized. But when it comes to your career, when it comes to your life, approach it as an organizer would, right? Which is ultimately not just to get someone in the door, but to move them up the ladder of engagement. So take that coffee and ask that person to follow up in a couple months. Uh, ask that person who another one or two people you could talk to about the same topic you just spoke to them about would be and ask for an introduction. Follow up with people. I mean, the number of times Cole does this, the number of times I get emails from former students just checking in and telling me what they're up to, you know, it makes it that much easier for me to absolutely move heaven and earth if a couple months after that they want help with a new job or a reference or do I know anyone who works for this specific candidate. Um, so cultivate and maintain relationships. Uh, don't just do the transactional networking. And uh, last but certainly not least, um, I, I said this a little bit before, but the theory of the case behind the class and ultimately, uh, I think all of our work for whatever causes we believe in uh, should be that the outcome is what matters. It's not the credit. It's not the you know titles. It's, it's about making a difference in people's lives. And if enough of us uh, are engaged in that way with politics, we dramatically outnumber the cynics and the opportunists. That's some great advice. Thank you for that, um, especially as someone who is about to graduate with political science. Thank you. As we're coming uh, up to time here, and of course, we want to be respectful of the time that you've given us, um, we did kind of want to end on a more uh, fun note and ask about some of your favorite memories at UW. Do you have any specific professors, any classes, or any study spots that you remember in particular, anything that you would like to share from your UW experience? Oh, man. So let's start with the just the sort of social and personal, and then we'll get into the academic and professional. Um, so, I mean, springtime at the terrace, I saw a couple of weeks ago that the Memorial Union was putting out the chairs, um, you know, having a pitcher of beer once I turned 21 and, uh, you know, playing cards with friends on a Thursday afternoon, it, it doesn't get much better than that. So I hope all of you really cherish that life comes at you really, really fast. And I think that there's this natural draw we feel as young people to having to figure it all out right away. And if you don't have a job lined up, you're stressing about that. And if you, you know, uh, have a big midterm coming up or a final exam and, you know, you, you feel like you have to, you know, ace it in order to, you know, somehow set your life on a different trajectory than it's already on. Um, and all of those things are important, obviously, but, um, you know, don't lose sight of, you know, the present. And ultimately, you know, I, I dropped out of school to go work on the Obama campaign and had to go back and finish. And I cherish those opportunities and the career path it set me on. But um, I also really, really regret not having spent a fourth year at Wisconsin and and gotten to know more phenomenal people who, you know, would be lifelong friends. Um, you know, I had tickets to all the sporting events. I loved football Saturdays and was a big hockey fan. We won a national championship when I was there. Um, love that. Um, you know, on the on the academic side, I, um, you know, one thing I, I regret doing is not spending more time outside of political science. I think there's just a tremendous community at the University of Wisconsin. Um, and, you know, we have some of the foremost experts in everything from sociology to biochemistry to, you know, obviously um, the political science department. So, you know, I was uh, pretty linearly focused on finishing. And to my previous point, I wish I had spent a little bit more time meandering, if that makes sense. Um, in terms of professors, I mean, the the class that really set me on my current path was David Cannon's Policy 104 uh, intro, Introduction to the American Presidency, if I remember right. Um, 
there was a professor who taught uh, a, an international political economy course that I took, who's still there, called uh, named Mark Koplovich, who uh, he was the first who really um, widened widened my view of how politics can help on can help us understand a lot more things in life than simply politics, if that makes sense. And the class in particular was about um, the international political economy and how different countries use, you know, monetary policy and their own economic choices to ultimately influence global politics. Um, and so, you know, while I don't engage in the international political economy uh, or its discourse, you know, on a daily basis these days, it really gave me this lens into thinking about how you know, everybody's making decisions based on, you know, their desired outcome behind the scenes. So those are the two that that really jumped to mind. But, you know, Ken Mayer taught a couple of my classes. He's a legend. Um, and, you know, more than anything, growing up and going to school in Wisconsin, you know, we're the birthplace of Joseph McCarthy and Robert LaFollette, right? Mo modern day progressivism comes from Robert LaFollette. And I think you could argue that some of the fringe elements of the Republican Party are very McCarthy-esque. Then we've got voters and students and um, leaders and everyday Wisconsinites that run the gamut, everything in between. And that is a really cool thing to grow up or go to school around. And so take advantage of that and uh, learn what you can because it's a special it's a special environment to be a part of. Awesome. On that note, Sam, thank you so much for joining your, us on the podcast. I felt your insights were really helpful for seniors who are graduating in a couple of days. So thanks so much. Thank you guys uh, for what you've done, what you're doing and what you're going to do. This is uh, fantastic to be a part of and I'm grateful to be invited. For more information on 1050 Bascom, visit polysci.wisc.edu and search for 1050 Bascom. The podcast is edited by Claire Salmi, Fiona Hatch, and Cole Wozniak, and is produced by Amy Gangle. Thanks for listening.